Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. Well, happy Easter, everybody. My name is Ed, and I'm so glad you decided to be with us today. I'm one of the pastors at Community Christian, and we're just honored you came out. Uh, particularly if uh, you're a person that doesn't normally do church or you don't know a lot about the Bible, I just want to point out to you that what you just had read to you is not the normal Easter scripture that we read. In fact, um, of all the four accounts of Jesus' life, uh, this one that fix that or you're just going to go nuts. Uh, this account that is uh, included in the Gospel of Mark, uh, it's the least read uh, by Christians on Easter because of the way it ends. In fact, if you have your copy of the Scriptures with you, you'll notice that it tells us that the Gospel of Mark, uh, we believe, probably ended with that line. But everything that we read appears to be normal. It just ends a little bit different. But you start with, if you weren't really paying attention, there's Jesus' body. They go to the grave. They're going to plan to anoint it. They don't know how the stone's going, to be, stone's going to be rolled away. But when they get there, it is. And then they find there's no body. There's a conversation with an angel who tells them he's risen. He's not here. All of that's really pretty normal. And it's what we've been celebrating all morning long. It's why we come together every Sunday to celebrate. Because Jesus resurrected on Sunday on the first day of the week, we come and we celebrate in our songs, in our prayers, in our thanks, in our time together, in communion, in baptism. All of it is us saying to the world, Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. But you can't forget that for the very first people who experienced the resurrection of Jesus, they didn't know what to make of it. They didn't know how to take it. That's why I think the earliest copies of Mark, I mean, Mark's the very first gospel written, went out, fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Which seems pretty weird and anticlimactic as a way to end the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. But maybe you can relate to these women. I mean, maybe you hear the songs we've sung today, and you hear the hope, and you hear a few of us saying amen to the video and to the song that we just listened to and it feels like where you live when we talk about putting an end to evil you don't see any of that taking place and you don't know how to take it I mean, you don't know what it feels like to be there not because of the chaos that's happening in the, our world although our world feels pretty chaotic not because of the division that's happening among everybody else but because of the division that happens in your home or the way you feel internally the fact that you used to believe, but you aren't sure how to believe now. 
And the truth is you're here because somebody you love invited you or because it's what you normally do on Easter or because there's somebody you hope to love that's here and you came as a date. And it's not the greatest date, I'll admit. But you're here and you just don't know truthfully what to make of this resurrection stuff. Well, you should know, one of the things we say at Community Christian all the time is you don't have to fake anything here, and you should know, I think, that the first people who experienced the resurrection of Jesus, the people in the Bible, they didn't know what to make of it either. They didn't know how to take it. In Luke's account of the resurrection, one of the other four who writes about it, it does tell us that eventually the women do sort of figure out that they should go back and they tell the men who you'll notice were too afraid to actually go with the women to the tomb. The men who were trembling and afraid of what might happen to them, they go back and tell them, and it says that the men thought their words seemed to be them like nonsense. Well, of course they did, because if somebody told you someone you had seen buried was alive again, you would think they were speaking nonsense. And Peter thought about it, and he gets up and he and John run to the tomb, and it says, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, and he wondered what had happened. Well, of course he did. Of course he didn't know what to make of it. Then Luke tells us there are these two disciples that hear all these reports coming in. They actually tell a man who's walking with them that is actually Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus, because who would think the guy you saw buried would be walking with you? So they see this guy walking with them, and they tell him, some of, our, some of our women have told us that there might have been something happened in the tomb, but we don't know what to make of it. And it's not until they walk with him all day long, and finally they break bread with him that they see. And then in John's account, after both of those accounts, there's one disciple that I guarantee you all of you at least have heard his nickname that's gone on for thousands of years now called Doubting Thomas. And he says, I will not believe unless I can put my hands in the nail prints in his hands. And then the very last line in the book of Matthew, when Jesus says those words, I want you to go to all nations and tell them, and be my witnesses. It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. That's after 40 days of walking with Jesus, 40 days of hearing him teach, 40 days of eating with him and being with him after 40 days with the resurrected Jesus, some of them doubted. Why? Because it's hard to believe. I'm amazed at the honesty of these writers. I mean, there's some of us in this room that know we've told stories that are 20 years old, and we don't tell them like they actually happen. We make ourselves the heroes of those stories. It's amazing to me that these guys feel like that they write these accounts of Jesus' life later, and there's not one of them that says, I believed all the time. I know the rest of the guys doubted, but not me. I was standing at the tomb going, five, four, three, two, one, Jesus! <laughs> Instead, they don't feel any need to massage it. They don't feel any need to make it feel like they all believed. They make it clear it was hard to believe. Why? Because it was. Or maybe I should say, honestly, because it is. Now, I have to say Jesus' response to their incredible lack of belief, even though he had told them before he would die, 
that he was going to die, and then he was by his own power going to resurrect. Even though he had predicted the whole thing, when they see it, they still don't believe. Jesus is incredibly gracious. I mean, we don't see even a hint of anything other than kindness that comes out of him. For example, there's no critique of Jesus in Matthew that when he's standing there and he says to all of them, go into all the world and tell all nations, you be my witnesses to the world. There's not any account of him saying, but not you guys who doubt. He sends the doubters out too. He sends them out as the ones to represent him. His response to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who couldn't believe that Jesus was with them is that he patiently walks with them hours and hours and he explains the whole Old Testament it pointed to this event. When he shows up with Thomas who couldn't believe until he sees the nail prints and puts his fingers in them, Jesus says, come on, here they are. It was hard for them to believe because it was, because it is. And that's where I want us to start this Easter because I know that has to be where some of you are. I don't want to rush past the fact. I don't, I don't want to just run past it like it's the most normal thing in the world. I want us to come before God with all of it and ask him to help us make sense out of it. So Jason's going to come and he's going to lead us in a time of prayer and reflection. Like Ed just said, we just want to acknowledge today that it can be a struggle for all of us at times to believe or to just trust in the power of this resurrection thing. Whether that for you is because you're, you're just honestly not sure what you believe about God, or maybe you just have some questions, or you're just not sure about the evidence for a bodily resurrection, right? Or maybe it's true that you would say, I, I believe that Jesus is risen, but if you're honest, you would say, I still struggle to trust that he can bring me this new life you're talking about, that he, he can run my life. I struggle to trust him. Maybe you follow Jesus, and today, if you're honest, you, you are struggling with a situation in your life, or maybe a sin, or a, it's a broken relationship something that causes you fear, disappointment, or hurt. Maybe you're struggling to trust that Jesus will bring that power of the resurrection to bear in your life. I want to say this real clearly, especially if you're new and you don't know this about our community. It's okay to not be okay here. It's okay to struggle with belief. It's okay to not have it all figured out. You don't ever have to fake anything about who you are. You don't ever have to fake about anything that's going on in your life. You can have your questions and bring your doubts and your frustrations and your hurts. They are not too big for our God. They are not a barrier in this place between you and God. And so we want to give you some time right now to just be honest with him about where it is that you're struggling to trust in the power of his resurrection. So... In a moment, I'm just going to give you one minute of quiet. And in that minute, I want to invite you to talk to God about all of that. 
And to get us ready to do that, I want us to say out loud the words that one father came to Jesus and said when he was asking Jesus to bring new life to his son who was tormented by a, a demon. He said, I do believe, Jesus, but help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe you're not even sure you believe anything at all. You could tell that to him. You could be honest with God. Say, God, if you're real, would you help my unbelief? Or if you're in the midst of a circumstance where you're struggling to trust Jesus, would you also just say that? God, help me overcome my unbelief because I believe God wants to answer that prayer. So if you feel comfortable, I'm going to read some words of Scripture together. And when you see us get to the words in bold, I'm going to invite you to read the words in bold out loud with me. Jesus said, Everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now let's take a moment, have a conversation with God about where it is that you need to trust his resurrection power. Father, help us to trust the power of your resurrection. No matter what questions or doubts we might carry, no matter what painful or disappointing circumstances we find ourselves in today, help us overcome our unbelief. Bring your power to bear in our lives so that we may praise your holy name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So what was the evidence that Jesus left that eventually the Roman world begins to make sense of this. In fact, that the government who killed him with 300 years later made Christianity the state religion. What was the evidence that convinced them? Because, of course, they knew, like we know, that dead people don't come alive. Well, one pastor named Will Williman put it like this. The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there could be no explanation other than something decisive has happened in history. In other words, the, the greatest evidence that Jesus left, well, it was us. It's the church. Think about it, when, when Jesus was resurrected, and people don't often think about this, but Jesus doesn't go back to drawing crowds. He doesn't try to go out and preach another great sermon that thousands of people come. He doesn't feed people anymore. He doesn't do what I know I would have done. He doesn't go to Pilate, who executed him, and go, I'm back. 
He doesn't go to the priest who lied about him and rigged up this trial and, and said that he'd done all the things that he didn't do and show them to scare them of what's going to happen. He doesn't try to give any kind of irrefutable proof. What he says is to a group of doubting people, you will be my witness. You will be the witness of what I've done in the world. Your life together will become the witness that the world won't be able to deny. And over the next few years, as they began to live it out, as the world began to see what the church would become, they were so unbelievably changed from the culture that was around them that the only explanation the Roman government and the surrounding nations around them could come up with was in fact that the Jesus they believed in was in fact raised from the dead because they could see Jesus living in them. You see, it was really, really hard for the disciples to believe because it's hard to believe. The only way they began to believe was they saw the life of Jesus in the church. And once the world began to see that Jesus was alive in his church, the, the world began to change. I just want you to think for, with me for just a few moments, and there are many things that I could list. In fact, I could talk for a long time about this. Books have been written about this, about the things that you take, just take for granted in the 21st century, that you count as just common sense, that everybody just believes in. And they are just sort of bedrock kind of truths in our world, like the idea of can't we all just get to a place where we let our differences go and get along? Why do we have to be divided? Well, that idea that people could be the brotherhood of man, it had never existed before the community of people known as the Jesus followers of the church. A Jesus follower named Paul would be the first person to ever write anything inspired by his leader, Jesus. He would write in the New Testament. There is no Greek nor Jew, so... There are no ethnicities that matter. There's neither circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian, Scythian, or slave, or free. Those divisions you see in the world do not matter. But in Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, you clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He's not making up an idea to try to get people to do it. He's writing from memory what he sees in the churches that are started all over Asia Minor. Paul's just describing what the church community looked like every week when he would go. A church that included every person of every background from every race, tribe, and tongue. Every nationality, every ethnicity coming together. Status didn't matter. Wealth didn't matter. Race didn't matter. Gender didn't matter. Male and female coming together on equal standards. Moral background, what you had done in the past didn't matter. Education didn't matter. You could come to that community and you could be loved, accepted, and transformed. There had never been a community like that in the world. And here's something more important for you to get. There had never been the idea that there should be a community like that before. No one had ever come up with the idea that your little tribe and your little family and your little thoughts and your nation was better than anybody else's nation. There had never been a community like it. There had never been the idea there should be. But over the course of history, that idea began to shape a people that eventually transformed civilization in the 21st century to the point that compassion for other people is what we think of as just should be a given 
But it was not so before the church. I find that when I talk about this with people, it's very hard for people in our day to even imagine what the ancient world was like, to think about how brutish it was and how hard it is. You think crime runs rapid. I'm telling you, people did everything they could. The weak were just killed in their world. Weak and vulnerable had absolutely no value, and they were done away with. In the first century that the church was birthed, there's a Roman philosopher named Seneca, and he writes, We drown children at birth when they appear to be weak or abnormal. It was just their world. Their parents were expected to do it. And if they didn't, it was a crime for the parent to not kill their child. Except for, after the resurrection of Jesus, there was a little community that formed around a leader who had said to them, Let all the children come to me. And they began to take all of these children that would be abandoned in the Roman world and they would adopt them as their own. They adopted them for no other purpose than to love them the way that Jesus had. You read about a man in Rome named Benigus of Dijon, a follower of Jesus, who nursed and supported and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and expo exposures. And the Roman government executed him for caring widows in their day if your husband died you could be put in prison to have the audacity for having outlived your husband and there was in their midst however a community of people who would look at these women who had lost their husband who followed a resurrected savior who in the midst of his suffering looked down from the cross and said that's my mom treat her like your mom and they went out to every place and they began to take in widows they weren't even related to. Rodney Stark says one of the main, main reasons for the expansion of the church in the first two centuries of the Roman Empire was because two major epidemics that destroyed a fourth or a third of the whole known world population. But while that was happening, and people were throwing the sick into the streets as they left the cities. Folks in this strange little community called the church would move into the cities and bring the dying and the sick at the risk of their own health because they said their Savior touched lepers and healed the sick and raised people from the dead. And then in the, that movement grew to the 4th century where essentially the first hospital that had ever been known in the world think about that a world that doesn't know when you care for the sick the first hospital for prolonged care of sick people was developed by a follower of jesus that you may have heard his name he's named saint benedict and by the sixth century every monastery that was started had attached to it a hospital and from that small community, the idea of compassion for people who were sick and dying and the vulnerable grew to the point that a convention had to be held in Geneva. And their organization would be started to alleviate the suffering of people around the world. And they chose as their symbol a large cross on a, on a white flag background. And they became known as the Red Cross. I'm not trying to say here today that compassion would have never come into our world. I'm saying that before the movement of Jesus, it was not in our world. It did not exist in our world. Could somebody else have brought it? Maybe so, but it is a point of historical fact that no one did until the church gave birth to it. In fact, 
Mark Nelson, a philosopher, says, if you ask what's the influence of Jesus on our world, just take the medical and fashion fields in our world, and I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely, lonely, for the practical welfare of the lonely, a school, a hospital, a hospice, an orphanage, for those who could never repay, that place probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus Christ. Because even though it might be hard to believe that a man could be raised from the dead, it is impossible to deny the changes that have come from the community that says that's what drives them. Well, you don't have to even look at history. Jesus continues to change individual lives. You are looking at one talking to you now. Ordinary men and women who would say their life was destroyed and at the point of death that he is resurrected and brought back to life. There are people sitting all around you who have found the changing power of Jesus Christ by trusting their life to the resurrecting Jesus. And I grew up going to a church, I think from about the time I was five until I left for college, the same the same church, the same community of people. When I went to college, I left for college when I was 18, and I moved to a different state. And I left church in Nebraska, and I went to college. And um, I had zero interest in finding a church. My mom would ask me all the time how it was going if I had found a church. I think I went once or twice to and then I met my husband who lived in Georgia and I moved to Georgia and we actually met because my mom met his family at her church. So I always say we're every mother's dream that you can actually set your children up. We talked about it and we talked about trying new churches. We talked about, well, let's see if we can find a place that we both feel like is the right church and community for us. Ben worked with somebody who attended CCC and so she had talked about it. So Ben said, well, there's this one church that I've heard about. Let's take a look at the website. We decided we would attend the Madras campus. The people were so friendly. <laughs> and they really felt like, it felt like they were trying to get to know us from the first person we met to the last person we talked to. They really, um, it, was, it was really genuine. And so we were gone the following week and we came back the next week to, that, to the same church and the guy at the door, Ted, he remembered our name. And I, re I remember turning to Ben and saying, that's impressive. And so we kept coming and um, the campus pastor invited us over for dinner, which was really nice. And we got to know their family and then that just became part of our routine. I'll, you know, now we were joining a small group and we were spending time with people in the church and we were really feeling like we were part of something that we hadn't been before. So after Ben and I had been married about five years, um, we I think we had been attending the church for a couple of years at this point. We had our first child. So Henry was born, and um, when he was six days old, we got a call from the doctor that said that he had a rare genetic condition and that we needed to go to the geneticist the first thing the next morning. The day that we went to the geneticist, our friends from church just surrounded us. When we got home that day, um, a couple people showed up at our door and they they were just 
there. And I opened the door. <laughs> Dawn said to me, you can be mad at God. And nobody had ever said that to me before. Nobody had ever said, it's okay to be mad at God. And it was the most freeing thing to hear because I was, I was so mad at him. And I like for days had been thinking, I'm overwhelmed, God, help me here. And then we get this diagnosis and it's terrifying and I'm, I can't make sense of it. it does, why, why is it my baby that you're, you know, deciding has to have this, you know, have something that they have to deal with. And people picked us up, picked Ben up, picked me up. We had um, three women in my small group rotated, spending the night at our house and taking care of the baby every third night so I could sleep. I wanted to run away from everybody and nobody would let me. And at the time I didn't think it was awesome because I really did. You know, I wanted to just retreat and stay at my house and be sad about what was going on and live in this fear that we had. But people didn't let us. And so we had been serving in our church and we had been, I had been leading a small group. And so after about a month, our friends started saying, when are you gonna serve? And when are you gonna have your small group? Is your small group gonna start meeting again? And not even kind of, not really even asking me so much as saying, okay, it's time. We had people kind of pushing us along each and every step of the way, which I needed because if without that, I wasn't going anywhere. I was gonna stay in my house and I was gonna do my work for work and that was gonna be it. A few years later, we had Jasper and um, at that point, I was nervous because Jasper also potentially was going to have the same thing that Henry had and when he was born, sure enough, he did and um, he was in the hospital for a couple of days and when he was six days old he actually came to church with me and I served that morning and I brought my newborn baby and I don't say that to say who I served that morning right after I had a baby I say it because I wouldn't have if those people weren't saying don't let yourself go back to that fear and so I didn't and I just kept pushing forward and there were moments where I wanted to just retreat again, but I had, again, I had all these people saying, don't, <laughs> keep pushing forward. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that if there weren't people saying that to me all along the way. And so through all of that, I just became incredibly aware of how God uses his community and how he uses people to talk to us and to guide us and to show us that we're not supposed to do this by ourselves. We're not intended to do life alone. I think a lot about what Ed said, point your feet towards Jesus and walk. And then I think about the 15 people behind me going, you know, you're, we're gonna make sure you're still going this direction. Because it's really easy to stop. It's really easy to get wrapped up in your own fear and things that are going on. So. Here's the message I don't want anybody to miss today. Particularly for those of you who consider you're part of the church. We're 2,000 years removed from Easter. From that first day Jesus resurrected. The evidence that our world needs, that our culture needs, the resurrection of Jesus, 
It's us. We are the evidence our culture needs. The evidence that our divided world that fights over everything needs of the resurrection of Jesus is a community of people that are so radically different than the world that's around them that all walk together in spite of their backgrounds, in spite of their differences, that voting doesn't matter, that race doesn't matter, that socioeconomics don't matter, that the only reason that it can explain us in a world that divides over everything is that Jesus Christ is risen. The evidence that people need is people that intentionally gather together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday because Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence that people need is a group of people who sing songs of joy while the rest of the world is afraid and anxious of everything. The evidence that we need is a group of people who are grateful and content with what they have from the hand of a loving Savior when everybody else in the richest culture the world has ever known is complaining they don't have more. The evidence that we need is people who are kind. The evidence that we need is people who are generous. The evidence that people need is people who can love the unloved and care for the uncared for and serve the unserved. The evidence that people need is people who don't hold grudges and can forgive the hurts that have been done to them and can move on and love people who are in the same place that they were without reservation. The evidence that people need in our world is people who look like Jesus because the life of Jesus has been resurrected in them. And if you're here today and you're not sure what you believe, I get it. And I'm so grateful you came and gave us a chance to witness the resurrection to you. Because Jesus is alive and he's alive in us. And I'm not talking about the sermon or a song. I'm not talking about a video. I'm talking about the gathering of the saints that come together that you say to yourself, something is different here. I don't know what. I'll tell you what it is. It's Jesus. He's in us. So we invite you. Would you come back? Would you decide to be a part of us? And it Following Jesus really isn't that complicated. It really is a decision you make to point your feet toward him and just take a step, and he will come with you. And if you need us to, we will put 15 people behind you and push you. Not because we want to push you, but because we know occasionally all of us need help. We all just need help. So that's why we end every week by saying to you, hey, would you take a next step? That's why we have a place called the Next Step Center so you won't conf get confused of what you're supposed to do at the Next Step Center. It's why we invite you to a class called Next Steps so you could decide to point your feet toward Jesus and take a next step toward him. I'd love to talk to you there. I'll be there after the service. But right now, we're going to end our time by taking the meal that Jesus provided for us to remember him. When you came in today, you received a little set of elements just like this. If you'd go ahead and find those and just hold them in your hand for just a minute. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is our opportunity to honor him in the way that he asked us to. If you're here and you, you don't know what to make of all of this, you can just set this aside and, and, and let it go by. That's perfectly okay. Nobody's going to think anything about that. But for followers of Jesus... We're going to eat this and drink this to symbolize his body and his blood that was given for us. And I'm going to ask you if you feel comfortable doing so, if you would stand with me while we take it together.
Let's go ahead and open the bottom and take out the bread and then hold it. This represents the body of Jesus that was given for every one of you so that you could have life with him. Take, eat, and remember. And now the cup. This is the blood of Jesus that he says was poured out for many. Take and remember, you have forgiveness in his name. For whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup together, we proclaim that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that he is surely coming again. Amen. And now we're going to end our time together by singing the same song that months ago when we started our study in the book of Mark. On the very first day of this year, we sang together about the King of Kings who loves us and gave his life for us. He's reigning and he's working all things out in our world for our good. And one day, we will sing these words to him. So let's sing and honor our King together.